invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's on page 954 from these Bibles in the pews. As you're doing so, I want to mention a a few things. Uh, I want to give you a compliment that was given, a very high compliment, by one of our missionary couples. Uh, And I would say through the years, you do a great job. And this, this is a legacy going back many decades of missions conferences and and the hospitality that you show to the missionaries. And I think there's genuinely an attitude among us that we want to minister to them. We want them to leave here feeling refreshed and replenished and not just drained up from their time of being here. Um, the Persleys, who serve in Turkey, and they've been there for 14 years, uh, a very, very hard place to minister. Uh, they, they not only made our conference, but they were here until yesterday. And uh, you arranged, uh, some of you arranged for them to stay in a house and have some privacy after the conference was over. And Jacob is an author. He's got several books he's written. His Ph.D. was in Islamic studies. Uh, his wife's got a Ph.D. Now she's doing a master's. So they're, they're very academic. And he, he wrote, he wrote 90 pages this week. But in between the writing, uh, a number of you really spent time with and invited and included them, um, the wife and, and Jacob and, and their family. And, and my wife babysat their kids. <laughs> I was at the house, but Barbara did all the work Friday night. Well, here's the compliment. Before they left, um, Jacob uh, told me, he said, you know, we've talked, and if we ever came back to the States for an extended time, we'd want to be in this church. Isn't that nice? I mean, we hear, you know, I hear all sorts of things, but rarely do you hear a compliment like that. And that's a compliment to your hospitality and your friendliness. And they said, because of the community, that was the word, the community within the body here. Okay, Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let me give you a little background before I read the whole chapter, which isn't long. Uh, We've been studying 1 Corinthians off and on for months, and... Uh, If you've not been here, I'm not going to go through all the background, but the Apostle Paul went to this urban center of Corinth. He planted a church. He led people to Christ. He trained the leadership. He stayed there 18 months. Then he left and traveled to the city of Ephesus. So he's a long way from there. They write a letter. The The church in Corinth writes a letter to him that's delivered, and the letter asks questions about a bunch of issues. And so he writes back, and he's, he's now beginning to deal with the issues. And we come to chapter 5, and it is one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult chapter in the entire book. It's difficult from a technical standpoint of what does the language mean. He's going to use some phrases here that aren't used anywhere else in the scriptures. And we, and, and we have to work hard to figure out what they mean. Uh, Secondly, it deals with a subject that is never pleasant, and that is the subject of discipline. Now, the word disciple or discipleship and discipline are all related. But you know, whether you're exercising or doing athletics or business or academics, uh, discipline is a part of life. Whether you're learning to play the piano and you're practicing scales, that's a discipline every day if if you are to make progress. And there's, there's really nothing pleasant about it. Uh, discipline yields a good reward in the end, but at the time, it's not pleasant. Now, there's 
positive discipline and there's negative discipline. Positive would be like practicing the scales on a, on a piano. Negative discipline would be punishment when you've done something wrong. Now, it's important when we come to Corinthians to realize the metaphors that are used for the church. We get to the New Testament, the church sometimes is, is seen as a, as a building. It's seen as a body, and the body has many parts. Uh, it's seen as a flock, and God is our shepherd. But here in this passage, it's most important to see that the picture is that of a family. And there's a father, and there's a mother, and we're brothers and sisters. And there's discipline that is administered just like in a family. And as a parent, discipline is not pleasant. It's not, it's not pleasant to administer it. It's not pleasant to receive it. Uh, and yet it's necessary. Proverbs says that the one who does not discipline his child hates him. If I hated my kids, I'd say, well, here, go play in the street. Or there's a loaded gun, go play with that. You, you know, that would, that would not be love. Uh, that, that would be hatred, in the words of the Bible, to, to, to do that rather than saying, here, you need to stand back. You see a car coming, you, you stay over here, stay this far off the road. Hold my hand when we're in this busy crowd, things like that. So here we, uh, we get to this, and we have to remember the words of Hebrews 12, which said, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Then verse 11 of Hebrews 12 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So discipline is never pleasant at the moment. Uh, and so we'll keep this picture of the family in mind as I read chapter 5. Hear God's word. It is actually reported that there is, a sex, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together before we look at this. Father, we ask now your guidance by your Spirit to open our eyes that we will behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul had received this 
this factual report about this immorality going on in the church. It, apparently, it's common knowledge. Uh, it's not a rumor, and so he doesn't treat it as a rumor. I mean, this apparently was known that this man had his father's wife. Now, what we don't know is whether the, his father had died or whether his father and his previous wife had divorced. But there's an, an immoral relationship going on. It's publicly known. You heard about it at the Kroger in Corinth and at the Bineingle Softball Park. I mean, people knew about this. And they're saying, what kind of church is that down there that they're running? And, and Paul is concerned, and he's alarmed, not at the sin in the church, I mean, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, then you've seen the church and the world often it's hard to separate at times. Uh, I'm rarely shocked by anything uh, I hear anymore that, that goes on, but who knows, maybe this week will be different. I hope not. Uh, but so he's not shocked that this is happening. He's shocked at their attitude toward it, that rather than being heartbroken and mourning and being sad, they're arrogant and proud. You say, well, how, how could they be proud? I, we're not told exactly, except they don't see it as being a problem. And apparently they were proud that, look how accepting we are. Anyone doing anything is welcome here with open arms. You know, come, come and be a part of us. Look how accepting and how loving we are. Even this fellow that's doing something illegal by Old Testament law and illegal even by many of the Gentile laws that had laws against incest like that. And so Paul is rebuking them for their attitude, and he's upset because of that. Now, he says you should mourn. It's the word, it's the concept of grief or sorrow as though someone has died. Most of us here know what it's like to mourn. We've had loved ones pass away. We've had close friends that have died, and it's just pervasive. And you know it's, it's not a time for laughter. It's not a time to tell jokes. It's, uh, it's just heartbreaking. He said, that should be your attitude toward this, this member, this so-called brother in the church that's doing this. Now, he doesn't address the woman, so from all indications, she's not in the church. There's no indication she's a believer, but the man apparently is part of the Corinthian church. So whenever a Christian brother or sister sins, it's time for us as a family to mourn and to seek to help the fallen believer. In Galatians 6, we have these words. Brothers, there's the family picture again. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So the issue here is not so much the immorality. In, in Paul's mind, this is black and white. This is clear. Uh, it's their attitude. So let's look at the verses 2 to 4. Uh, it's black and white to Paul. He doesn't share their acceptance and their nonchalant attitude about this. And even though he's many miles away, as I told you in the city of Ephesus, he takes action. He says, though I'm absent in body, I am present in spirit. And he is basically saying there's no need for a trial here. There's no need to try to gather the facts. The facts are well known. Everybody knows this, what's going on. Now, verses 3 to 5, are they form one long sentence in the Greek. And uh, it, it's, it's not simple. It's not simple for me. But he's, 
he's dealing with them as an assembly. He's not talking just to a handful of them. He's talking to the assembled church. In the New Testament, when the local church would gather, they called it the assembly. The Greek word was the ekklesia, from ecclesiastical church-related things. So when they assembled, it was as a local church. He's not writing just to a few of them, but as a whole. And he's saying that you should do this in Jesus' name. That is, in the manner of Jesus, with the attitude of Jesus. And what are they to do? Verse 5 starts off with three specific or gives three specific instructions. And each one is a difficult phrase. The first is... I've decided to deliver such a one unto, unto Satan. A person told me before the first service, they, they try to read the passage before they come to church. They know I'm going to preach on it. And she said, I was very disturbed by that phrase. It is disturbing. What does he mean to deliver someone over to Satan? We know that there's one other reference that we know of in the New Testament that uses this kind of terminology. is when Paul writes to Timothy. And he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know who these guys were or what they did. Whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, we know they blasphemed. But what did he mean to hand over to Satan? It, 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 it signified being cut off from the church, to be excommunicated, to be cut off from the communion of the church, to be cut off from the Lord's Supper, and to be handed over to Satan's realm. Okay, here's my understanding of what he means. Colossians says God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. So if you think of basically the entire world as a domain of darkness controlled by Satan, and it says he's brought us in the kingdom of the Son he loves. So that's like an umbrella. When we are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, when we come to faith in Christ, we then are part of the kingdom of God. We're still in this life. So to be delivered to Satan, my understanding, and of all the people I read this week that have a better knowledge of this than I do, far better, it was that to set someone out of the church is to return them to the domain of Satan. They are removed from the umbrella of God's protection and provision that you experience as part of the church, the body of Christ on earth, and you're returned to that domain. Now, William Barclay though at times the way he dealt with Scripture was highly questionable, he, he, he said this about this passage. The world was looked upon as the domain of Satan just as the church was the domain of God. Send this man back to Satan's world to which he belongs is Paul's verdict. But we have to note that even a punishment as serious as that was not a vindictive punishment. It was to humiliate the man to bring about the taming and the eradication of his lust so that in the end, his spirit should be saved. It was to bring him to his senses, to make him see the enormity of the thing that he had done. It was to discipline, not exercise solely to punish, but exercise rather to awaken. It was a verdict which was to be carried out, not with cold, sadistic cruelty, but rather in sorrow as for one who had died. Always at the back of punishment and discipline in the early church, there is the conviction that this must be done, not with a view to breaking, but to making the man who has sinned. John Calvin, in his commentary, said, The person who is put out of the church is, in a way, handed over to the power of Satan. 
because he is alienated and cut off from the rule of Christ. The second phrase, for the destruction of his flesh. There's two possible explanations for this. One view is that the flesh is to be understood as physical, that is the body. And so the reference is to sickness and even death. Uh, Paul speaks of later in 1 Corinthians, when we come to chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper, and he talks about those who do not evaluate themselves, do not assess themselves spiritually, or they partake of the Lord's Supper and they're not believers. And Paul says, and I quote from 1 Corinthians 11, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. He's saying because of your sin, some, he says many of you are sick. Now, I know a lot of people have the flu. Don't start making applications where there aren't any right now. And some of you have died. Some have died. That's what he means by have slept, have fallen asleep. Now, of course, sometimes there's sinful patterns that just damage our body. You can do, commit certain sins and they have a physically damaging, damaging effect on you. But also, there's a sickness that we see in Scripture that's sent by the Lord uh, as chastisement for sin. Sometimes to such a case that a person dies. Now, I'm just going to tell you something. I don't think I've ever said this from this pulpit. I can think of several cases in the years I've been in ministry where I think that has happened and the person died. Have I said that to the family? Of course not. Have I ever made that comment at a funeral? No, because I don't know for sure. But I've known some cases where people hardened their hearts against God and they just shook their fist in his face and were unrepentant month after month, sometimes year after year, and they got sick, sometimes suddenly, and they died. It, Chip, are you, I'm not adamant about that. That's just my personal opinion, that I, I think this does happen. He may have been meaning that. Uh, he may have been meaning that, though on the other hand, not that he would get sick and die, but he may mean the destruction of the flesh. Let the flesh run its course. Let him follow this lifestyle. And, and it eventually, the, the pleasures of sin will pass. Because as Augustine and others taught us, we all have a God-shaped vacuum in our lives, and we try to fill it with other things, with pursuits of the flesh, or recognition or material things and it doesn't satisfy us because God has hardwired us not to be satisfied with anything but him and so he could pursue this relationship with his stepmother he could or or just like the prodigal son who demanded his share of the inheritance and he goes off to the far country and he wastes all this money on wine women and song and now he's broke and he goes back and he gets a job. He doesn't go back home, but he gets a job feeding pigs. And he's looking at the food. He's feeding the pigs. And he's, and he's hungry and he wants to eat their very food. And he said, what have I given up, basically? I had, look what I had. I, I was, had this fine food back in my father's house. And he is, he is, his flesh, in a sense, has been destroyed because he has been saturated with his sinful lifestyle. And he sees how empty it is. And probably half of us up here could stand up and give testimony to our own lives being that way. Maybe that's what he means with this man when he says, I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That his spirit may be saved. Now, this is the positive word. The discipline is remedial. It's to be a remedy. 
He's saying, do these things, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. Even discipline as serious as this is putting the person out of the church. It was not to punish, but to awaken and reclaim the sinner. Now, I don't know this man personally, but a close friend of mine who did told me that he had a friend, and this man was a member of Carl Ridge Presbyterian Church years ago. And for those that aren't in the Presbyterian Church, or that at one time, anyway, was this large, several thousand people church in Fort Lauderdale. And he, I don't know the circumstances, but apparently was living a rebellious lifestyle that was publicly known to such that he was disciplined by the, by the church. And he either was suspended from the Lord's table, which is you're still a member of the church, but do not partake of the Lord's supper for a period of time until, we, until you show us you're repentant, or he'd either been excommunicated and he was no longer a member. But he was there on a Sunday after this had happened, and they were serving the Lord's Supper, and he'd been told, do not partake of the Lord's Supper. And so when the elements came to him, when the bread and the wine came to him, a very discreet elder who was serving leaned over as this man was going to reach for one of the elements and said, this is not for you. And the man said, at that moment, God changed his heart when he realized, I'm cut off. I'm cut off from the fellowship with Christ. And he was brought to his senses like the prodigal son, and he repented. And he points back to that moment when our culture, and many of us would say, look how mean that church was. Can you believe what that church did to that man? They should have just embraced him with open arms. You know, instead, they said, no, for your own sake, we have got to take this action. And that's all the action we have as a church. We don't hire private investigators. We don't go out with arm, with guns and stuff like that. It's strictly a spiritual power. We don't sue people. That's it. It looks pretty weak in the eyes of the world, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, you can't take the Lord's Supper, and, and you're no longer a member of the church. So what's up with that? Well, you see the power. The power of Christ was present in that. And then, quickly, and I'll just hit a couple of high points. He, he gives us an analogy of the leaven and the Passover. Uh, he says the, the Corinthians are proud, verse 6, that's where I am. He says their boasting is not good. And so he borrows an illustration from the kitchen. And it requires, says it only takes a small amount of yeast or leaven to, to leaven a, a small lump of dough into this large, large lump. And he applies this to the church. And so leaven, in his little analogy, represents influence. And he's saying by keeping the offender, this man who's in this flagrant public sin, within the church, within the fold, is retaining the bad influence that he's having on other people. It applies to the individuals. But they were glorying, they were happy and boasting about allowing this evil to be present there. And Paul's saying, you're putting yourselves at risk. Paul understood the nature of sin. I'm not sure who said it, but I remember years ago hearing someone say, sin is not static, it is always dynamic. It never stays still. It always progresses, and it, it just permeates out, and it affects people. My sin, whether you realize it or not, affects you. 
My private sin affects you. Your private sin affects me as we're members of one body here in the church. And then he says about this in, in verse 7, the latter part, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Uh, you know where this comes from. The Passover was the annual commemoration for when God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and the Israelites had offered up a lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost of their house. The destroying angel passed over and they were delivered. And then every year at a certain time they would celebrate, they would commemorate the Passover. So it was an annual thing. And now Paul says, no, we don't do that once a year. We don't celebrate once a year because Christ is our Passover lamb. It's all the time. It's perpetual. So we can celebrate all the time. So we mourn the presence of sin in our own lives and others, and yet we celebrate because of Christ. <coughs> he says, then he talks about the church and the world. He says, I'm not talking about the world when I say this. I'm not saying separate yourself from the immoral and the idolaters and the drunkards and so forth, he says out there. Isn't it interesting today, often in the church, we talk more about the world's sins than our own. And Paul's saying, what do I have to do with that? God will judge that. He said, I'm talking about you. From time to time, I'll have someone say, Chip, why don't you preach about this or preach about that or preach about this? And I'll say, you just want me to preach about sins you don't do. Uh, one, one Sunday years ago, I, I think it was passage in First Timothy. It had to do with money, and, and um, I, I made a comment, not too well thought out, but, uh, which is nothing new, but I was talking about materialism, and I began to laundry list all these luxuries, and I referred to lake houses among other things, and somebody after church that owned a lake house came up and said, I noticed you didn't say anything about boats. And I said, of course. I said, I own a boat. Of course I didn't say anything about a boat. <laughs> you know, so we want to look at everybody else's sins, but, but not our own. So Paul is saying, I'm not talking about cutting off fellowship with the world. I mean, you, that's, you can't go live in monasteries. You can't just cut yourself off like that. He's saying, I'm talking about with this so-called believer. And basically saying, put him out and, and purge him from the church. Now, I, I've got three questions of application and then a closing comment, uh, which I'll do quickly. Where are you in this passage? Perhaps the Lord has sent someone to you and into your life who has rebuked you. And they were right. Whatever the issue, but you hardened your heart. And you knew they were right, but you said, just keep your nose out of my business. I, I'll, you live your life and I'll live mine. I would just urge you, brother, sister, do not underestimate the leavening influence of sin. Second, perhaps you know another believer whom you should prayerfully admonish. In private, as the scripture says, not, not rumors, not gossip, but alone, in private. And you've chosen not to do that, and you're telling yourself it's because I love that person, and yet you're very fearful for the path they're headed down. You may need to talk to them and pray that God would use that before the situation gets worse. But now the third question, or the third scene, you might say, where you might fit in this, maybe you're like this man who, who's getting ready to be excommunicated. He's practicing this publicly, this immorality. 
But right now, yours is secret. And you don't think anybody else knows. Uh, God knows, and that should be the chief concern. And you don't realize that things are right on the verge. I should put it this way. The dam is about to break. And your private sin, maybe the Lord and his providence is going to allow to become very public sin, and it's going to affect a lot of people. And maybe, just maybe, God brought you here today to hear this, and it's God saying, come back to me, my child. Repent, soften your heart, turn from this before something really bad happens. Now, the application of all this today is never easy. Every situation is different. But I do want you to notice one thing. Paul has confronted them about their tolerating of this clearly wicked uh, habit going on publicly in, in the church. And his desired end with them taking action is the restoration of the man. Guess what? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a strong indication, though not conclusive, that the man has repented. And in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, Paul basically says, receive him back. It's like he rebuked them for keeping him the first time. And then 2 Corinthians is saying, welcome the brother back to the fellowship. There's the restoration that was longed for, that was looked for. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are all broken and uh, sinful and filled with shame and, and crimes against you. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus that he didn't pay for some of our sins, but for all of them, that our trust would be in him and him only. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to mourn over our own sin and over sin that we see around us rather than laughing about it or joking about it or making light of it. We pray that we'd see life and eternity from your perspective, and, and we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. It's only through him we can have life and fellowship with you, and we pray in his name. Amen. If you take your